Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Amen. How are we, church? Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, man, we are, we are going to dive into Mark here in just a moment. But since it was 103 degrees yesterday, I thought I'd give you a little update on the air conditioner that's coming our way. Um, for those of you that are newer, you don't know, we did a, we did a whole uh, really just giving series, a giving moment, I'll just call it, where, where we just sort of put some of the needs that the church had before our congregation. You all, you all uh, were generous, uh, crazy generous, and, and gave so much to that that we were able to do some of the updates in here, but also to include the update on uh, bringing AC into this room. And so that is on its way. Yeah, here's some amen, some praise. I think I just heard a tongue, actually. Somebody was so excited about that. Um, but that, uh, uh, as with everything, supply chains are, uh, let's just call them wonky at this point. So we ordered everything uh, way back in January, February timeframe, and that was due early June. It is coming now, hopefully within the next few weeks, uh, a little bit over a month, possibly. So what you can't see that has happened is there's been a lot of structural reinforcement that's gone up above my head, which I do appreciate by and large, uh, because it's going to be sitting up there. Uh, all the duct work will be coming in over the next couple of weeks. And so uh, we may be seeing some scaffolding late June, early July that's in this room. Uh, but we'll be cool, right? We'll be cool with that because that means, means the good Lord is providing us with some AC up in this room. So that'll be great. I know a lot of you, that is, a, that is an important thing that is on its way. And so we're glad to let you all know about that. Uh, the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is where we have been for the last couple of weeks, and we're going to be continuing here in this Gospel uh, for the rest of the summer. And so we're going to be hanging out here, looking at the story of Jesus through the lens of Mark. Mark is a, he's a really uh, succinct writer, very to the point. He is focused purely on the Gospel of Jesus. He doesn't feel the need to kind of bring in his own commentary or explain certain things in his own way. Uh, nothing against what Matthew and Luke does. Obviously, there's a place for all of it. But what Mark is most interested in is Jesus and his mission and his life and what he did. And so we are following, uh, following Jesus around through Mark. And last week, what we talked about was that Jesus, uh, probably his main message as he came into the world, laid heaven aside, put on flesh, stepped onto planet earth, was that he was here to bring the kingdom. He was here to usher in the kingdom of God. And we talked about how that has broken in and we live now in this already not yet tension where the good fruits of the kingdom has begun because of what Jesus has done, but we do not inherit it fully yet. So we do still live in the midst of pain, in the midst of brokenness. And at the same time, we get to celebrate the good things that God has already ushered in. And we are going to keep on this theme today. Last week, we talked about just one verse. Today, we're going to cover uh, really the rest of Mark chapter 1 and go all the way up to Mark chapter 3. And so we're going to keep going on this idea of the kingdom. And the way that we're going to kind of, uh, like kind of couch this message today is just in this idea, uh, a day in the life of Jesus Christ. A day in the life of Jesus Christ. What was a typical day for our Savior, our King, Jesus, as he walked around and did his thing, just like you and I uh, go about our day and do our thing? We just have uh, patterns. We have things that we do. We have uh, empires and kingdoms of our own that we are building right now. Every single one of us are, are putting things together and doing certain things in a way. Uh, the question is, are we, are we organizing our life and architecting our life in a way 
that desires most to bring the kingdom or are we defaulting to what culture demands of our time? And that's, that's the question. And even as you kind of sit and we let that linger for just a moment, I think a lot of us realize, man, I think most of what we spend our time doing are just the, just the mundane, ordinary, regular things. And it's not that God is detached from those, but do we look at those through the lens of how God wants to bring his kingdom through them? There's so many, th- I don't know if you feel this way. There are just so many things that are always demanding of our time, aren't there? Like even right now, the fact that you're in church shows that you have made a priority statement by giving the first hour, the first morning of your week to the Lord. You're here in church, worshiping him, celebrating, gathering with his people, and that's significant. Uh, but, but there are so many other things we could be doing right now. Even if it was just eating brunch, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be good too? And if it's not brunch, it's work. And if it's not work, it's family. And if it's not family, it's sports, it's youth sports. It's all these different things that are constantly bombarding our time. My question is, are we intentionally prioritizing the kingdom in all of those things? Or have we just defaulted to how culture would stack things into our calendar? Because Jesus of Nazareth was possibly one of the most intentional human beings that ever walked the planet. He was, he was never seemingly missing a moment, always in tune and aware how even as he was going about his day, walking from one place to another, he was available for what the Holy Spirit would prompt him to do, available for what God the Father had for him to do on earth. Now, of course, you and I aren't gonna live as perfectly as Jesus. We all know that, that's, that's why we're here, right? But as we endeavor to follow him, one of the things that I have to take note of from a day in the life of Jesus Christ is that he was always intentionally seeking to bring the kingdom at any moment. And so again, the question is, are we building out a life? Are we building out patterns? Are we building out the way that we're thinking in a way that desires most to bring the kingdom, even as we do boring things like the dishes after dinner? That's the question this morning. So a day in the life of Jesus. I have six things that I observed over these few chapters that Jesus did. This this portion of scripture is, is also seen as Jesus's early Galilean ministry. So it's kind of the beginning of his ministry as he's starting off doing certain things. And I just found six different things that he did throughout his day. Uh, the first thing that I noticed that Jesus did, and there's no passage for this, no scripture for this, but, but I just, I can't help but notice Jesus worked a full day. So like Jesus worked. Like Jesus had a full, he had a full day. He, he went around his day and did things all day. And then, and then in, at the end of chapter one, it says he was, he was ministering and healing people late into the night. And then early the next morning, while it was still dark, he was back up and at it again. See, I, I, I'm afraid that kind of with this great resignation movement that's happening in our country, right? Where, where I think COVID settled in and we were all scared for like a couple of weeks and we were all kind of worried. We didn't know what this thing was. And then, and then we were just working at home there for, for maybe, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months. Maybe some of y'all are still working at home. Anybody? Anybody still just still working at home? Office was just like, yeah, nope, just decided we're done with that. Yeah, okay, so several of us. And what's easy once you've just kind of worked at home for a little bit, is you realize, man, you know what? I can actually get a few things done at the house during work. And then I, and then I also, re- and this, I mean, this is true for me, maybe it's not true for you. Um, a- as I go from that, it's like, man, okay, how much do I really need to work? Can I, can I cut out at like two o'clock and still get in a full day's work? It feels like I can sometimes. I can get all the tasks that are being asked of me done, but, but I, I just can't help but observe. And I think one of the counter Christian things that we can present to the world right now is work is a work ethic, showing up for work early, 
Showing up for work and being ready to go. Rendering your work, as Colossians would say, as unto the Lord and not unto man. So we, everywhere we step into, every space, gosh, it is so easy right now for you young people. Let me just urge you. I think you may be worried about what college you're going to go to in the fall. Are you going to be able to get a job? I promise you, if you show up and you're ready to work and you're eager to learn and you're ready to be a team player, you will be able to get a job just about anywhere right now. Is that true? Some of you older saints in the room that, that know you have all these job openings because some people are just not showing up to work. But Jesus did. He poured himself out. He found himself tired. I mean, how does the woman at the well story start? Jesus, wearied from his travel. Jesus was, I mean, he was pouring himself out. If we are not going to bed tired at the end of the day, I wonder if we're leaving kingdom work on the table. And I'm not just, I'm not just talking about vocation here. I'm hoping what you're seeing is that your vocation is probably one of your primary areas for ministry. And if you are giving yourself out, spending yourself there, then you can't help, like you cannot be using your gifts if you're not working somewhere. If those gifts aren't being exercised somewhere, then, then you're, you're like the steward who buried his talent, his one talent, and just sat on it. No, God has given you gifts. God has given you a wiring. God has given you a, a way to think about the world so that you can use it, so that you can go and work. And for some of you retired people, man, you're some of the busiest people I know in this room doesn't mean that you're retired from kingdom work. Amen. So you can still, even if you get in golf, coffee, lunch with a friend, you can still get in a full days of full days worth of kingdom work before you go home and put your head on the pillow at night. Amen. Now it's a weak amen, but we'll, we'll just keep on going past it. It's the wind. Isn't it the wind of our culture right now? Do less. Don't let people tell you what to do. Self-care, right? And I, Listen, I'm all for some good rhythms. I I love me some good rhythms, but I also love good rhythms that allow me to rest because I know how to work. And we should, as Christians, know how to work. The second thing that I noticed that Jesus did was uh, right out of the gate, right out of the get-go, Jesus had a team. Jesus had a team. It it says right here in, in Mark chapter one, verse 17, and Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. One of the first things Jesus does is, is he starts building this group of guys to be around him and to, to do this ministry with him. He, he, grabs, he grabs him. He says to James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their nets or they left their father Zebedee in the boat while the hired servants and followed him. They followed him and they went to Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. They, they went with him. Jesus, Jesus had a crew. He had people he was doing life with. Later in chapter two, you see him call Levi. You see him call the apostles to him. And I just, I think it's critical that we observe that a day in the life of Jesus focused on bringing the kingdom involves a we, not just a me. Do we see, like he, he, he seeks to build himself around other people. And so I think for every single person in this room, how many of y'all know you're not Jesus? Okay, we can skip the hand raising because we all know we're not Jesus. And how many of you in your weakness, not that Jesus was weak in any way, but he still saw it necessary to build out a team, to do, have people that he does life with. Uh, I think the Sunday gathering is great. I don't think it can be replaced by any form of digital consumption. Can we just acknowledge that for a sec? Like I think being here and seeing the expressions on people's faces, sitting in moments together, gathering as God's people, I think it's critical that we gather together in a big room. I also think it's just as critical 
that you are known in a smaller group of people. It's way too easy to just pop in and out of church. Let's put a smile on. God bless you. How you doing? Good, brother. Good to see you. Praise the Lord. Walk out the building and never have anyone who can really poke into your life and say, yeah, but how is this? How are you doing here? Hey man, I, 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 saw, I saw the way you were talking to your wife recently. How many, how many, how many of us have we taken the step to invite other people into our life to say, hey, if you see a blind spot in me, I want you to say something to me. Because we need the one another's. We need the relationship uh, that the New Testament talks about to one another, one another, so that we can, we can encourage one another, admonish one another, greet one another, um, do life with one another. And so maybe, maybe that looks like a small group for you. Maybe that just looks like you have some of your very, very close friends and they, and they know your life. They know what's going on. They know where you're winning. They know where you're struggling. They're keeping you honest, keeping you humble, keeping you spurred on towards Jesus. Every single person needs that. And Jesus demonstrated that. Jesus, as he was walking throughout the earth, didn't do life alone. And he could have. He could have. Like he could have just ran around doing miracles, doing his own thing and gone to sleep by himself at night, but he didn't. He chose a team. He got people in his corner. He walked with people. He talked with people. He taught with people. Don't you see all over the New Testament, all over the gospels, when he's out teaching and there's the crowds and it's these big moments gathered in front of a lot of people. And then what happens after that almost every single time? He goes back and he sits down with his disciples and he explains what the parables really meant. He sits down and he, and he gives them a further application for what he just taught. Every single person needs some other people in your life. And maybe they're in this room, maybe they're not. I don't, I don't think small groups just has to be the only thing that the church does to breed community. But I do think every single person in this room needs to take it upon themselves to pursue community, to pursue relationships with other people. So Jesus worked and Jesus had a squad, right? He had a squad. And his squad was squad goals for sure. I don't know why I said that. That was so toolish of me. Anyways, it's fine. Thank you. I received that. Um, the next thing that I noticed is that Jesus taught. Jesus taught uh, with authority. Jesus taught with authority. So Mark 121, it says, And they, Jesus and his team, went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So it wasn't uncommon at this point in history for there to be synagogues in different city centers. There would be all these different uh, synagogues. Maybe, maybe if there was just a small enough city, there would be one synagogue. There'd be one person who was in charge of that synagogue. But what would happen back in that time is, is rabbis, traveling, traveling rabbis, traveling rabbis, how funny did my mouth just do a thing there, right? <laughs> traveling rabbis would come through and they would, and they would teach the scripture at, at a time of a gathering. So there'd be a gathering a lot like this and somebody who maybe who was coming through town who was a prominent teacher, a prominent rabbi, and they would come through and they would start teaching. But the reason that Mark makes this distinction, scholars believe he makes this distinction that, that it says, and he was teaching and they were astonished at what he was teaching for. He taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So when some of these people would come through, what they would do is they would teach what the Old Testament meant through the lens of what other people thought it meant. So these teachers would kind of roll through into the synagogue and they would say, well, you know, according to this rabbi, who's this scholar from here, knows that this, this verse out of Isaiah means this. And they would teach using, using they, they would teach citing a source. And Jesus came and they were astonished because he didn't cite sources. He taught with one who had authority, one who actually taught from authenticity, you could almost say it. That he, he knew what the scriptures meant. 
So I think my question for all of us is, do we have a life going about day to day where we have, we have created just echo chambers for Christian thought in the way that we talk? Or do we talk about Jesus from personal authority as in, I know him and I know what he's done for me? Because all the teachers, I mean, they, they were astonished because the teachers who were coming through, they knew about the Bible and they knew what other people thought about the Bible. But it was, it was clear what Jesus revealed was there was a chasm between the people who knew stuff about the Bible and people who knew it for real. Jesus, Jesus had a deep understanding of what it was. Uh, partially, let's just be honest, because he helped write the book. Amen. But you and me, like we can teach from authority. But it's like, no, Jesus has shown me this. Like if, if all your interactions look like with your friends or, or oh, I'm just quoting this thing that I read or, or this pastor said this online on this Instagram reel and it was really catchy and, and we just kind of repeat these phrases. Christianity has so many little phrases embedded into it that I don't think we, we fully let settle into us, but we just regurgitate them. Like, oh, well, God is good. I'm becoming more like him every day. And it's like, well, okay, hold, we can just say that, but, but is that true of you? Can you say that with authority about your own life? Do you own the statements that you're saying or are you just kind of regurgitating what's in the Christian wind that is blowing about? Jesus taught from authority. He taught from personal relationship with the Father, which we'll talk about more in just a minute. But every single one of us, it is not God's plan for you to just quote me to your friends. Your friends need to see what God is doing in you right? And so then from there, once people start to see what's going on in you, then you can be teaching from, from authority, from no, God, God has done this. Man, I used to have that thing in my past. Man, man no, I'm not perfect, but I'm not there. I'm not where I was. I'm not where I want to be, but I, I'm moving along. God is doing something in me. I can speak to it from authority. I'm not bound by that anymore. God's healed me from that. God set me free from that. Can you say that or can you just regurgitate what other people have been saying about God? That's the question. A day in the life of Jesus was filled with him teaching, preaching, proclaiming from authority what God was about, what God was doing, what was happening in the kingdom. So that's three. The fourth thing. Thanks, Sharon. You're with me. I'm with you. We're going to do this all day. Okay. The fourth thing that I notice is that Jesus, and this is probably what Jesus is most known for, what he becomes most famous for quickly, is that wherever he went, he seemed to manage to bring healing, freedom, healing, freedom, and forgiveness to people. Healing, freedom, and forgiveness. So you, you go, and, and Mark, let's just read, I guess, one of the stories. Um, it, it picks up right here. As he's teaching, they're astonished because he's taught with authority. And it says in verse 23, the next verse, and immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Um, so this would be a fun moment in church. Can we all just acknowledge that? <laughs> like we're all just gathered together, listening to the teaching of the Word of God, and all of a sudden somebody comes in with an unclean spirit, and the demon out of that person just starts speaking to the teacher. I just, I don't know. I think that'd be wild. That would be wild. Wouldn't it be wild? Can we just acknowledge how crazy, like how uncomfortable would you all feel? How uncomfortable would I feel? That'd be crazy. But what Jesus, he's, he's teaching, and, and it seems like out of nowhere, this person's there. And Jesus replied to him saying, be silent and come out of him. Do you notice how, how, how uh, non, uh, like just crazy this whole scene gets? 
It's not all wild. It's not just like out of control. Jesus says, hey, stop, come out of him. It's over. So Jesus, I mean, we, we can go, keep on going. In verse 26, it says, and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him and they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. It goes on, like the next story, subsequent story, is, is Jesus healing the paralytic. So they're kind of desperate to get this guy who can't walk to him. They can't figure out a way in. And so they cut a hole through the roof, lower him down, right? And, and it says, when Jesus saw their faith in 2.5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So he's healed a person. He's forgiven a person. And then in Mark 3, we see this, Mark 3, 9 through 12. And he said, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. And he had healed many and he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Jesus at this point, uh, he knows where he's going. And so he's constantly trying to mute the unclean spirits about speaking his plan and revealing his plan before it's appointed time. But everywhere he's going, he's healing people. He's up late into the night healing people. He's, he's predominantly, this is what's happening. He, there's a man with a withered hand, a paralytic. He is, he is healing people of actual diseases and ailments. And he's setting people free from demonic possession or oppression. We can talk about that more in a couple of weeks. But there, there is demonic influence happening and he's, he's bringing freedom to people who have been uh, suppressed or oppressed or possessed by the enemy. And he's relieving people of their diseases. This is, I would say this is almost one of the easiest things to see how the kingdom looks. How does the kingdom look? How do we know when we're seeing it? It's when people are set free set free from their sin, set free from being in bondage to something, be set free from the, from the way that they are stuck in their thinking. They're actually liberated. They're not trapped in what was binding them anymore. That's how we know the kingdom is broken through because what they used to belong to one ruler and now they are transferring dominion over to King Jesus. Jesus is setting people free. He's also healing people. Uh, like, I don't know how much you think about heaven, but when I think about heaven, what I think about is no more sick calls, no more hospital visits, no more funerals. Like people will be healed. There won't be, there won't be suffering anymore. And so one of the ways we know we're seeing the kingdom is when people are being healed. When sickness is going away. Little things, little things, significant things. doesn't matter. We pray for all of it. We pray for healing. We hold it all with an open hand because he's God and we're not. But, but I, I don't want to be the church that comes at healing with, uh, well, Lord, you know, thank you for medicine and thank you that you have a plan. Okay, good. I, I believe in both of those statements. I also believe that the kingdom of God can break through right now. And so I'm going to pray in Jesus' name that he just might bend down from heaven and heal somebody and deliver this sickness right now. Man, and, it, and if it doesn't happen right now, I'll keep praying. If it doesn't happen and the person dies, I will ultimately ask questions and rejoice because I know that they are in a different place because they are with him. Amen? And so the kingdom looks like a day in the life of Jesus is bringing the kingdom through setting people free healing people, but then he's also forgiving people, which really starts to drive the religious leaders crazy. It, who, who is the one audience that Jesus is always up against the most? The Pharisees and their, and their cousin, whatever, the Sadducees, right? I mean, we have, we have these religious elites that Jesus is always up against. And so if we have Jesus, Jesus worked hard 
Jesus had a crew. Um, Jesus, Jesus taught with authority. He brought the kingdom through healing, freedom, and forgiveness. The next thing that we'll talk about is how Jesus uh, fought hollow religion. He fought hollow religion all the time. In fact, we only see Jesus get angry a couple times. And both times, it's, it's when the Pharisees have created an oppressive system or they've created oppression with the law rather than letting uh, grace renew somebody. That's both the times. And we think of Jesus getting angry. We should not think of it like when we get angry and, or when we have a moment of anger. All my anger in some way is probably covered in some way with some level of sin. I get angry at my kids. I get angry at a traffic, a traffic situation. Jesus's anger is perfectly, uh, he's, he's like a, a holy, holy indignant. He's frustrated because it is not the way that it should be. So um, we, read, we read this in, in Mark 2, 6 through 9. It says, Whilst now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? Speaking of the fact that he can forgive people. He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Then he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you might know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Rise, pick up your bed and go home. He healed him. He set him free and he forgave him of his sins. Mark 12, 2, 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. This moment starts the, the telling of five different stories where Jesus has run-ins with the Pharisees. And it's, it's likely that these are not like subsequent moments in Jesus's life as he's walking about his day, but Mark is pulling together a theme. He's pulling together five different stories to say, hey, then there's this big old thing that starts to happen in Jesus's day-to-day -day life where he is constantly up against the Pharisees. And he's up against the Pharisees. It says in Mark 1, or sorry, Mark 3, 1 through 4. It says, again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So you can see this person, he's sick, he's in need of help. He has a diseased hand. And rather than the Pharisees reach out to try and help or try and, try and uh, fix this in any sort of way, they're, they're sitting in the corner kind of waiting to see what Jesus is going to do because it's the Sabbath. Shouldn't be healing on the Sabbath. Shouldn't be working or exerting on the Sabbath. Um, they're watching so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But the Pharisees stood silent. So I love this moment. Jesus, Jesus, rather, he could just heal him off in the corner and change this man's life and set him and let him go. But instead he decides to make a scene. He kind of decides to, to turn the knife in a little bit, if you will. Like I, I, I love these savage Jesus moments because I don't think it's typically who we think of with our like warm, cuddling a sheep, like sitting off in the corner, feathered, perfect, beautiful hair, makeup kind of looking in some of your pictures on your walls, right? But no, it's, it's Jesus being a little snarky. He's got a little edge to him. You know what I mean? So he says, he brings him up. He brings him up in front of everyone. Mark 3, 5. And he looked around at them with anger. He was angry. Look how quick his anger turns to grief. He was grieved at the hardness of heart. One of the difficult things to read about in, in Mark chapter 3 is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I think, I remember it was probably last summer, uh, a gal was asking, hey, how do I know if I've done that? 
right? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is this, it's written out in scripture as the sin that is unforgivable. It's unforgivable. Uh, it's uh, my opinion of what that means. And because it's in reference to this story, it follows right after this story is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a, is a, not a one-time moment, but is it a consistent hardening of your heart to the Holy Spirit of God? And, and the Holy Spirit's convicting you, compel, trying to draw you in, and you just are consistently saying, nope, no thanks, no thanks, no thanks, no thanks. And it's unforgivable in the sense that you get so far down that line that you're never going to ask for forgiveness, and so God's not going to forgive you. Right? And so, and, and what he's saying in this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, what he's, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, what he's saying here is, be careful, Pharisees, because you're close. You're close. You can see it from where you're at. See, I think just to put everyone in the room at, at ease who's maybe ever wondered before, have I committed that sin? The fact that you're asking that question and desiring a relationship with the Lord would prove to me that you haven't. It'd be pretty good evidence for me. I'm, I'm, I'm not the judge of anything, but it'd be pretty good evidence to me that you desire a relationship with Jesus. You desire his grace to cover your sins. You desire him. You want to grow in godliness. And that is evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life, which means you have been forgiven and the Holy Spirit is doing things in you. Amen? I don't think that's something that the Christian ought to worry themselves about. But back to this story. They're, they're, they're wondering what he's going to do. He looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This starts the friction between the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day who are ultimately going to put Jesus to death at the end of the story. Um, the reason that Jesus is, is so unwilling to be compatible with the Pharisees is because I think it breaks down to a few different reasons. The Pharisees have used religion, they've used the law to build themselves up in a certain way um, to say my, my ability to behave and my ability to perform is greater than God's ability to restore my heart. So they're so dependent on their self-ability to obey the law rather than to be dependent on his grace. In that, what they've done is they've built up the law and now they've created a, a separation between those who follow the law and those who don't. And so it's not just that, that the Pharisees have come in this way and they puffed themselves up. They all sorts of self-righteous, not needing a savior is how they would have seen themselves in their mind. They're just, they're just saying, okay, the more we can just rigidly obey the law, uh, it's, it's gonna be uh, the more that we are in relationship with him. And the people then, what this creates is a separation with the people who are not following the law or the people who have sin or the people who have disease like this man with a withered hand. They go, oh, well, you have that because you're not as righteous as me. And so it also creates separation from people. The problem is God loves people. God loves people the most. God loves people the most. And so what, what happens is rather than these people who have experienced the law, which Paul says is, is good. That's a good thing. He's thankful for his upbringing in the law, but it creates this rift between the Pharisees and the people. If you remember, Israel's, Israel was meant to be this beacon of hope for the world but rather they are just creating this elitism for themselves, separating themselves from people who can't obey the law. It also creates this, this love. The Pharisees have this love and adoration for rules rather than having relationship with the Savior. And so here's, here's what I think we have to ask ourselves because the longer you hang out in the church, the, the more prone you are to give yourself over to a Pharisaical spirit, to become more like a Pharisee. The more you hang out here, the more, the more things God, by the grace of God, he's put in your life so that you grow into his likeness. And the drift that can happen so easily is for that to separate you from the big bad world. 
But the reason that Jesus comes against the Pharisees so hard is because they are using their elitism to separate themselves from the world. And they're depending only on themselves, not depending on grace. And they're falling in love with rules, not falling in love with a savior, not following, not becoming dependent on God. Here's the question. Is the fruit of what your relationship with Jesus producing in you, is it producing more of this should where you, where you are so focused on the rules rather than the person? Is your relationship with God creating a separation from those who don't have a relationship with God because you're so afraid that you're going to get some of that on you? Is, is your relationship with the Lord, is it creating in you this, this sense that you have to do these things rather than you get to do these things because God loves you? All of those things are evidence that, that, that it's not the kingdom that's at work in those thoughts. It's something else that's making you think this way. If the Holy Spirit's in you, man, to, like David says, it, like uh, the, the boundaries of your law have fallen for me in pleasant places. It's like his delight to be obedient to the word. He's not following the law to earn something. He's following it because he's wholeheartedly in love with God. Right? And, and so you just, we just can't get it twisted the longer we hang out in church where we start to get more and more obsessed with the rules rather than continually falling in love with the Savior. Because even what Paul shows us in Romans is that the law exists basically just to be an MRI machine that shows us how much we've fallen short and we are in need of a Savior. And so what Christianity is, it's the, it's the proclamation, it's the declaration with your life that I have sinned, I have messed up. I'm in desperate need of Jesus who was perfect and by his grace, he has saved me. And so I'm gonna commit myself to him, not because I have to, not because I'm gonna win favor by doing all these rules, but because he loves me. And as, the more that we can keep coming back to that fact, the more that it's gonna create this inward transformation. See, the Pharisees, all they generated was rules that led to, led to oppression. What Jesus is trying to put in you is the spirit that leads to freedom. Not, not, and listen, we can't get it twisted. It's not freedom to go then do whatever we want to do. It's freedom from the behavior of our past. It's freedom from the sin that hindered us so that we can continue to follow after him. And none of us is perfect. None of us has arrived, but we're all getting better day by day as we behold, look upon, gaze upon his inward beauty. That's what it is. That's what it is. And so here's my last point. If you want to look at what a day in the life of Jesus looked like, he was consistently communing with the father. He was consistently communing with the Father. I think about communion, how, how really it was, it was uh, kind of our, our mantra, this word that I felt like the Lord kind of gave us to focus on as a church for the year. And man, we, we started the year off with this body and blood series that was really a series on what is communion. And we hoped that we would put more significance to that word. So I hope even as I say it, you're thinking of more than just, you know, the elements that have been prepared for you this morning. But you're thinking of actually like this relationship of God where you get to abide in him and he in you. And it's, it's soul ties to one another where you have just given yourself over to Jesus and, and you're just falling in love with him and you're spending time with him and you're delighting in him and he's delighting in you. And in that process, it's not creating moralism where we try to follow the rules. It's creating transformation where we actually become more like Jesus. And so here's, here's the verse. Here's the verse. It said, Mark 1:35, and rising very early in the morning, late night of ministry, Jesus has been doing stuff all day. It was probably 103 degrees outside like it was yesterday. I'm just kidding. I have no idea what season of the year or anything this was happening in. Maybe it was cold. I don't know. But Jesus does a full day's work. Everyone goes to bed exhausted and he wakes up before everybody else. 
don't know how many alarms he had set on his iPhone or whatever, but he knew that that time of day was a priority. I'm not saying you have to have time with Jesus first thing in the morning before the sun comes up, but there is something about that early morning time. There's something about it. It's quiet. Nothing else is going on. The world hasn't waken up yet. And it's just really easy to lay aside the distractions and to focus your mind on Jesus and to set your day off going, God, I want to bring your kingdom. I want to be, I want to be on what you're on about. So show me, Lord. It says that very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed, left his crew, and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. Search, there, there's like an urgency in that searched word. They couldn't find him. They were looking all over. Finally, they found him and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said, um, let us go. Let us go on to the next towns that I might preach there also. For that is why I came out. You want to live a life on mission. You want to live with the intentionality of Jesus. You want to order your life in the way that he ordered his life. It starts with knowing who you are doesn't start off evaluating what you're doing. Always comes back to the statement, Jesus knew most who he was. He was the son of the father. He belonged in him. That was, that was preeminent in his mind before he started to evaluate the things that he was doing. And so it is with us. So it is with us. If you don't receive the identity that Jesus loves you and he spends time with you and he wants to commune with you, God wants to abide with you, spend time with you then it doesn't matter what you do. You could build up the next great business. You could raise amazing kids. Um, you could do all the things that your hopes and dreams desire. But if you do that apart from a relationship with him, um, Jesus says it this way, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, to get everything you ever wanted if you lose your soul? It's all about coming back to this moment, to communion, to where we sit and we just consider the fact that Jesus loves us, that Jesus has saved us. And so right now what we're gonna do is we're gonna close our service here in communion. And so um, my ask, my hope in this moment is that you don't just come to stamp this through to get on to whatever's next in your summer schedule. I love your summer schedule. I'm happy about whatever, all the fun stuff you're doing. But I hope that before you get there, you take a moment and you just remind your soul that Jesus has done this for you, that Jesus is in this moment, and that Jesus has future plans that he's longing to stir your heart up to. Jesus, today we're just so grateful that you've called us to be a part of this plan. I pray as we go out from here, would we really evaluate what we've prioritized, what we're doing, what we're seeing, what we're striving for. And God, I pray that even right now in this moment, if our, if our uh, life is marked very little by evidence that we want to follow you, and we know it, there's not as much time in your word as we want. There's not as much time praying as we know there should be. We would you not let us focus so inwardly on where we've fallen short? Would we rather, by the power of your spirit, would we, have, would we have our gaze turned towards you and your perfection and your goodness and your love and your mercy and your kindness and your grace? Jesus, we love you so much. And all of those things are so evident to us right now in this moment. But God, I pray that we wouldn't let what you've done for us, don't let, it, don't let us rest fully in what you've done for us. Let us be charged and commissioned to go and to find other people to share this story with. So I pray this week, wherever we go, whoever we're with, would we see opportunities to bring the kingdom, to look for opportunities to offer your forgiveness, look for opportunities to beg for your healing, to ask for your liberation. God, would we just see the people in the world we're living in, would we see the redemptive potential in all of them? Because the gospel changes everything. We love you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.